In the startup world, it's becoming more common for founders to share mistakes they made when they were starting out. But we rarely get to know about the early mistakes investors make. Well, today, Jonathan Levy is going to bring the challenges he faced from both sides. Jonathan moved from Belgium to Mexico right out of college and built a food delivery app called Mi Orden that was sold to Sin Delantal in 2012. His experience fundraising until then had been so frustrating that after the acquisition, he decided to give back. That's when he joined his co-founder, Sergio Romo, again, and together, they started a seed capital firm called Investo. One of their first bets was Rappi, before many had dreamed of becoming a unicorn. Today, Investo's portfolio companies also include Unbabble, Cambly, Runa, and many others. But that's not all. Jonathan and Sergio also co-founded Green, a brand you may have seen on scooters around one of their many locations. By merging with Brazil-based Yellow, Green went from 4 to 2,500 employees in one year and became Grow, a micromobility pioneer. In this episode, Jonathan tells us about the hiccups in his journey, his counterintuitive tips on crafting a good pitch, precautions on building a company that depends on VC, and how to deal with conflicting interests. My name is Brian Reckworth, and this is Latitude Podcast. Vamos Latam. Welcome to the podcast. It's really great to have you. You're a founder that has pretty deep roots in the region, and you've become a prolific investor also, someone that's invested in, in a lot of companies in the region and helped a lot of founders. We've kind of connected over the last like month. It's funny because I kind of knew about you, Sergio, and then like in the last month, all of a sudden Clubhouse kind of brought us together because we found ourselves in the same rooms and I think we riffed on a couple, like particularly a, for a couple of weeks where we had like a lot of conversation with founders. So it's great to kind of get to know you. And I'm glad that we can have you on the podcast. Oh, thank you for the invitation and, and good job doing the podcast, inviting great people. Um, yeah, it's funny how Clubhouse like replaced something that it, we should have met, you know, maybe somewhere in Sao Paulo, in Silicon Valley uh, with common friends that we, we know that we have a lot of people that we know yeah. in, in common. Um, and kind of uh, because of pandemic and thanks to, to clubs that kind of replaced that. No, so suddenly you're talking with some friends and then you're a friend of a friend. And hey, I I know I know about you. I didn't know you. And and, and then suddenly you kind of share information and and, and you create new relationship. And for that, I think that uh, when people are asking about uh, clubhouse, I think that um, this is something amazing they did and great way to meet you. It is cool to have that kind of serendipity. And I have had some really great guests on the podcast, but I think that there aren't as you know many people that have been so deep embedded in the Mexican ecosystem. And so I want to like dig in that with you a little bit about what you're seeing in, you know, in Mexico. And let's first start off with maybe a good way to frame the conversation is there's a, a common thread among experienced entrepreneurs, which is we talk about our early mistakes that we have as founders, right? I've had tons. I know you've had some. and But rarely we talk about the mistakes we've made as investors too. And so I'd love to hear some of your memorable mistakes that you made when you started out investing and were kind of new to the kind of venture scene and what you learned from that. It's a good question. And I think that it's something that actually I, I speak a lot with some friends, founders that start investing. And I think that the first common mistake is... Since we, we, when you start, you have a limited access to deal flow, and then you compare to a limited different companies no? or startups. So 
obviously what you think is good or bad is very limited. On the other hand, you have usually when you're a founder, you have access to other founders. Um, and the first mistake is not, not, not wait and see more deal flow. So you have a better sample to compare. Um, so it's, it's the contrary of what it's, it's counterintuitive, but you have, you need to be very patient and start looking and you might, you know, in some certain case, lose opportunity in some good companies, but it's part of, of the learning curves, um, um, uh, learning curve of, 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 of investing. The second biggest mistake I, I think is we usually start doing like biggest check, bigger checks because we, we believe like we, we believe in a company and then suddenly you made three, four investment and you're out of money. <laughs> and and then come the fifth or the sixth, and that's a great company, and you don't have money anymore. And exactly what happened to us, uh, we started investing what for us was bigger, big checks at the moment uh, when we started investing. And um, and obviously you make mistakes. You have you haven't seen that many companies. So and then when we started getting to YC and starting investing, we were very limited in in the amount of money that was available. So usually what I I, I suggest to founders or to angel investors is okay. Think backwards, you know, how much money are you ready to invest? It doesn't matter like if it's a lot of money or, 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 or less, but divide that by at least 10. So you'll be sure to invest at least in 10 companies. And then it's very rare that in a good company, somebody will not accept your money because it's a small check. It's often the contrary, but that's the kind of thing that in the beginning you don't, you don't know and you believe that they, putting a bigger check will be easier for somebody to accept your money. But it's actually a country, a good company, one like doesn't have enough space for enough investors. So the smaller the check, the easier it is actually to get uh, allocation. Um, so by dividing that, uh, usually it can be seven, it can be 12, but try to find a number where you're actually going to make a portfolio. And the, sec- the, the third mistake is believing that, you know, investing in startup is actually a good business, you know? Um, it's 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 not, um, and probably most of them will not succeed, and most of the money uh, will be lost. The good thing is that only with one that's successful, you're probably gonna make some money. But it's not like life like usually it's not like life changing money when you invest, unless you invested in Coinbase, you know, when they just started and you knew the founder. Um, but most most of the time, it will be like part of being part of those companies and and, and grow with them. And, uh, and with an interesting portfolio, the end result, if everything goes right, that you, you're going to make some money, but it's not an, an, a given like of investing and then you're going to make money. It's actually the contrary. Yeah, this is a, a bit of the false understanding that a lot of like the wealthy families in Latin America have is that they're like, they're trying to write big checks, buy big chunks of companies. And then they're used to investing in real estate where it has like your monthly kind of income coming from the investment. And that's just not the reality of startups. So I love the power law dynamic, right? You're talking more about like, you know, making sure you have a large enough portfolio. You don't want to miss the big winners. And it makes a lot of sense to have that portfolio construction. So the early days, what kind of checks? So you were writing bigger checks in the beginning. It's funny, I made the same mistake, right? The check size kept getting smaller for me because I started running out of money too. And then I realized that instead of putting $150,000 $150,000 in a company, I probably should have put in 10 or 15K in 15 companies. And then you become less emotionally tied also. Never want to invest more than you can afford to lose, right? Um, exactly. I think that's the point. What I usually say to a, an angel investor is 
put something that if you lose, because actually it's highly probable that you're going to lose, it's not going to, you, you're going to be able to sleep that night, you know? And if you make a 10x, then it's going to pay for the 10 companies that you invested. But actually, it was more or less the same numbers, $150,000, $200,000 checks in the beginning. And we went down and down and down to, you know, $10,000 uh, $10, checks. And until we raised the fund, and then obviously, then it goes up again. But because it's completely different investing with a fund than investing as an angel. As an angel, every investing, it's like you go to the, um, to the casino and you play roulette. Every time you spin, it's another game, you know? And and with a with a fund, it's more like a, a poker tournament. No, it's you have to construct, manage your chip. You know, you, you need to get to the final table if you want to to get a prize. So it's a completely like, different way. I like the analogy. So you invested in Rappi uh, when they were super early, and you know I was not smart enough to do that. I remember meeting Sebastian and Simon in 2016 in Madrid. We were both on the panel. I had other distractions at the time, but. You built a food delivery app that was acquired by big players. So what were you doing that was different and would take over the market? And did it help you that you had that experience to realize they were onto something? I think it's a mix of, of a few things. But obviously, it's always easier when it's, when it's an industry that you actually know and that you understand. In our case, having built a marketplace for food delivery, we understood before we sold our shares and we left the company, we understood that the future was in owning the whole operation and not just being a marketplace because you cannot control the quality of the service by just being a middleman. So for us, Rappi made a lot of sense because we were already thinking about doing that or we, we were thinking that that was the right direction even before meeting the guys from Rappi. Then we invested in a Colombian company that was doing, I don't know if you remember in the US from YC, there was a company called Magic that you just could send an SMS and you could get whatever you wanted. And we invested in equivalent in a company called Kiwi in, in Colombia. But curiously, um, it was Rapid doing the whole back office, you know? So they were just the, the front end. At that time, Sergio was starting going out with his girlfriend, which became his wife. And he has that in common with you because he's married to a Colombian. And he was spending a lot of time in Colombia. So being there and being able to see and, and speak with the guys from Kiwi, knowing about uh, a Rappi, he started meeting with, with, with Sebastian and, 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 and Simon. Um, so, so I think this is also very important. You were asking about investing. I think another point that's very important is getting to know the founder, spending time with them, understanding how they think, uh, what's their vision, um, this is something that you cannot do on a demo day and, and just five-minute talk with, with, with the founder. Uh, unfortunately, sometimes you don't have much time to decide you know, because you are confronted. So it's, it's a paradox. And that's where people start trusting 500 Startup, Latitude, YC, and trust that they did the, the right process to bring you. But in our case, that was a, a way that we had time to, to connect and, and to get to know them better. Obviously, I, I hope we could have in, in invested even earlier because the earliest uh, is the best. Um, but I remember well talking to, to, to Simon and his ambitions, the way he had such a clarity of what he was building and what it will become. Um, then you believe or not, but it was really impressive to see that in a founder. And usually that's, that's what co convinces you or not to invest. Yeah. 
crazy conviction that they had. Now, did you, when you invest, you, I mean, you were pretty early in the deal. How was pro rata handled in that situation? And what are your thoughts on pro rata? I should answer in two ways, as a founder and as an investor. As an investor, obviously, you always want pro rata, no? Because that's the way, that's actually the way that you make money. If you, if you are capable of maintaining your position, even better, if you can have a super pro rata, which means that you can even put more than your pro rata in the next round, that's even better, no? Because usually you invest small checks and then in the one that are doing well, you want to, to be able to put more money. My conviction there is that is if, I've, if as an investor, I'm doing a good job and I'm bringing value to the company, then why, like, it, it's normal for the founder to give me the possibility to at least do my pro rata or super pro rata. But it's very tough to ask it written to a founder to give you pro rata, um, especially in early angel seed stage, because at the end, you have a pie and you have a hundred piece of the pie. Like if it doesn't come from you, it's going to come from them. So it's impossible to give Purata to every investor because then they will get diluted until the end, you know? So by definition, it's impossible to get Purata or to give Purata to every investor. And I think the best way to solve that is to tell to, 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 to the investor, like, sure. Like you're telling me that you're going to help me with this and that and that I'm, I'm I trust you. No. And obviously, if you bring value, uh, you'll be the first, you know, I, 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 will, I will give you the prorata that you deserve, even if, if possible, a super prorata. But, but you, I don't think you should ask it when you start investing, but you should earn it if you do a good job. In our case with Rappi, um, you know, the Series A went so fast in less than eight months and nobody saw it coming and Sequoia took the whole round. And uh, for the Series B, what we did, we got very aggressive and being close to the founder and having helped them, you know, launching in Mexico and trying to bring as much as value as possible. We were, we were able not to do a super parata in the Series B. And then this for us is a, as a fund is, is a big difference, you know. Um, but I think I, I truly believe that it's something that as an investor, it doesn't matter if you're an angel or you're in fund, early stage, it's something that you should earn. I like that. It really aligns you with the founders and says, hey, listen, let me work my butt off and create value for you. And then you can reward me if you feel like I've delivered on it. Exactly. And as a, as a founder, you should respect that too. Because if, if somebody is bringing value and then you say, oh, I'm sorry, there is no play. Also, then, then it's not correct. I mean, it's something. But the correct thing is that not giving it as a granted to every investor because you can't. Simply, you can't. You're going to kill the company. Doing that. Yep. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Make them earn it. First of all, you've, you're a new kind of addition to our mentor. So thank you for joining Latitude and supporting, you know, you're leading a session here and you've got a wealth of knowledge and experience and you're very generous with that, which I think is great because that's the, the best investors prove their value first, which is why you're able to get pro rata. Um, so thank you for participating in our community. Maybe you could share a couple things of some examples of early founders, you know, things that they include in their, in their pitch that really get your attention. I think, and I don't want to spoil the, the session of tomorrow about pitching. That's okay. This is, for, this is for the audience. So it'll make the audience even want to join Latitude more because <laughs> they, get the, they get the rest of you. I think that you need to think about, about pitching more as art than as a science, you know? And there's nothing that it's, it's difficult to take something and, and replace. And usually most of, of what someone 
like the magic doesn't happen in what you say in the pitch, but in everything that you don't say. So basically your, your attitude, like the, it's a thin line be, between being super self-confident and being pretentious and finding that thin line and being able to, to keep it on the right side of the line makes a huge difference. People want to invest in somebody that give you that trust that they know what they're doing and that they will do it with or without you. The worst position in pitching is when you give the false impression that you, or, or the impression that you actually need the investor to succeed. Um, so I think that's, that's, that's the, the best advice that you, you can, then you can add, put, you know, like whatever you want in the pitch. If you fail on that, if you are pretentious or you don't live, you don't look self-confident or um, you, you kind of give the, pow the power to the investor by saying, I need your money to do my business. Nobody will invest. Or it's going to be a lot harder or you're going to get really bad terms for your company. Yeah. Well, what do you think some things that are counterintuitive that you'd suggest founders to think about when they're pitching to investors? Like things that you're like, it seems weird, but actually is effective or anything you can think of out of the box? Yeah, usually it's, like I said, like it's, it's not about trying to convince someone, you know? I think that a mistake is that most founders believe that pitching is about convincing someone, no? But the reality is that investors, they want to invest. It's like they already want to believe in God. So don't give them reason not to invest. And it's, it's basically you're already pitching to people that they, they, they only want, don't give them a reason not to invest. And I think if you put that in your mindset and you stop trying to convince and you just say, look, I built this, people like it, it's growing, you know, I don't have all the answers, um, but the, this is the best moment to, to, to join me because this can be huge, you know, and I think that's the best way to, to kind of pitch someone and he wants to join you and be, and be part of that. You, nobody expect you to, to have 100% figured out of your company. If not, you would not be pitching at Latitude. You would be, you know, ringing the bell at NASDAQ um, if you already have everything figured out. So, so take it a bit lightly and kind of invite people saying, we're building something amazing and you should join us, you know? And, and I would even add to that, that if you know who you're pitching to, if you know what they can bring as value, it's even better when they say, Brian, you know, you have a lot of experience into real estate. And I think that you can help us with this, this, this. It's, it's amazing because then you say, oh, he's right, you know? And it's adding a little bit to, to, to what I'm saying. You already want to invest, you know? Like, give me those reasons so I, I just gonna write the check, you know? So let's double click on that. Let me kind of frame, paraphrase a little bit. So you, you're pitching to an investor, you're identifying what their skill set is and you're really reinforcing that that is one of the reasons why you want them. Would you say that investors, they want to feel loved also? Like, is obviously, that, obviously. <laughs> tell me obviously. more about how that, how that plays into the dynamics. I think that mo most investors, especially angels, wants to bring value and want to be more than a check. You know, most of them. Um, it's not always possible. I would say that sometimes we've done a great job and we've, been, we've brought a lot of value. And sometimes we've been another check or another name on the cap table um, because you cannot be an expert in everything. And, and sometimes your value is really helpful in the beginning of the company and then the company grows really fast and a lot of things can happen. But I guess that the more you can research and you can, you, you know who you're talking to and the more you can, and that you know how they can help, the best fit it is for him to become an investor. And I like the way you frame it, and it's not far away from the reality, but think about yourself. 
would you prefer someone that doesn't know who you are and just say, you know, I'm pitching, uh, you know, I would love your check or somebody that knows about your career and, and can tell you why he believes that you can bring value. I mean, it's like we are human, you know? Jonathan, it's funny. I've been thinking a lot about cold emails and cold outreach, right? I mean, I'm sure your LinkedIn gets blown up. You're a well-known person, investor, entrepreneur. And I cannot believe the low quality outreach that we get sometimes. Like it's embarrassing that people just go straight for the ask. In all candor, it kind of reminds me when I was on the first date with my wife and I went in for the kiss and I got rejected. She <laughs> just shut me down. And, and she's like, I don't know you yet. That's kind of how it feels like when you're getting that cold message. Tell me about a really impressive, crafted message, tailored message that you've got where you're like, wow, I'm going to respond to this, even though I have no connection with this person. Just to give an idea to entrepreneurs listening about how to weave those messages in that really resonate with an investor's minds. So I would give an example that happened to me literally a couple of weeks ago. A founder that reached out and said, look, I've worked in a company that you have built, you know, after that I left. And I loved what like ABC that you brought to the company. Now I'm building my own company. I know that you can bring a lot of value. Uh, you don't know me, but I would love to have five minutes of your time to explain what we're building. And, you know, okay, like you said, now he was already working and blah, blah, blah. But on the same time, he took this five minute effort to bring a few reasons why I, I should give him those, those five minutes. And like you said, when you have someone that's just saying, look, I'm building a project. Um, who can I call me on that number? Like those kind of emails that, you know, uh, very common, like everyone else, we, we are not more or less busy than everyone else. And, and you're going to dedicate those, th that time to people that actually are taking the time to, to, to give you an ex an, a reason why they want to talk to you, you know? So I think it's not that difficult, you know, it's just, you know, thinking about to, and, and, and make it short. Look, that's, that's the other thing I love about, about cold email that when they're well written, they give you exactly why, what they need and, and they make it short. So it's very easy. I, I guess you have the same thing, but when you open an email or you, you see LinkedIn, you see like a huge message. It's not that you don't want to say, I don't have time right now. I'll read it later. And that later might be, you know, sometimes too late. No. Yeah. And I think we've all made the mistake. I, I know I have. When I started out, I remember bombarding investors on LinkedIn and kind of straight to the point, but not really doing the research about the individual. And in fact, my career started off with Viveral. Like the turning point was when I found this amazing investor and I sent him a message on Facebook and I wrote a super tailored message and he responded, which in retrospect doesn't really happen very often, but it was because I wrote a tailored message. Let's shift gears a little bit. You and Sergio seem like you have a really amazing partnership. You guys have been, you know, business partners, your friends, and you're, you're investing together now. What are the key components of a really solid kind of foundation for partnerships? I think the first thing, oh, it's, it's difficult because like, I think every relationship is, is different and personal. I think that usually when you go through really tough moments, it's where you, you really learn who your partner is. And we were unfortunate or fortunate to have a lot of bad moments in the beginning. So you kind of, if, if you went through those bad moments and, and, and you came out of it, then you can go all, all the way and, and you can continue. So I think that you really know who you partner when you go through difficult moments. And the more it happens, the more you create a relationship, the easier it is to continue working together, no? um, if it goes well. 
obviously, usually what we see, and, and, and this is actually, you know, the main reason why uh, a startup fails is, is because founders decide not to continue um, and usually not to continue together. And um, it's, it's funny because most people think, yeah, startups fails because they have no money, because there's no product market fit. For me, it's blah, blah, you know, at the end. You see companies like Airbnb, they stay together five years until they, they fine-tune, until they make one of the biggest company, you know, tech company of, of this decade. And it's because the founders wanted to continue. And, and it's, sometimes it's big pivot, sometimes it's fine-tuning. But um, it's all about, like, if you work with some, someone that you trust and that you believe that, that brings value, you end up building something great. No? So, yeah, I think this is something that uh, when we invest... We just recently invested in a company of, of three founders. They've been working together for 10 years, you know? So you, you kind of appreciate that, that they might have been successful or not. You can argue about the business, but you know that they will continue together, you know, after 10 years. So that you de-risk at least that part. Yeah, and that's a huge risk, right? Like co-founder dynamics. And, you know, I talk about that a little bit in my book and the challenges there. When you look at those moments of turmoil and they bring you together and you're able to kind of get through those, that's a, it builds a strong foundation for the future. I would say the same applies to investors, right? You don't really know yeah. who your investor is until shit hits the fan. Would you second that and, and maybe have- 100%, 100%. Questions yeah. on that? No, I think like you, you need to understand here that I think that as a founder, that everybody's doing their job, you know? And the more you go with institutional investor- their job is to bring the best value to their investor, which are called limited partners. So understanding that it's not who is good, who is bad. It's not about like being, being a good person, a bad person, that you are doing your job, basically. Usually, most of your investor will explain how they can bring value, how they are the best investor when they want to write you, when they want you to take their checks. But the moment the shit hits the fan, most of them will not be there. And um, the ones staying are usually, you know, the one that um, you will probably knock the door the next time you build something. And that's why also as an investor, sometimes I've dedicated a lot of time with companies that are going through a tough moment, um, which brings things amazing that if, you know, suddenly the, the wind comes back and, and bring the company, then you're obviously the best position for the next round and, and they will speak highly about you. But also when the company shuts down, you are also the first investor that we call for the next company. And, and it happened to us that, you know, you make one investment, it doesn't work, but then you're also happy to be able to invest in the next venture. So I think that this is more a matter of um, as an investor, where you, and, and I totally relate with bigger funds. They need to focus, you know, they invest in, in 10 companies and they will focus on one or two, you know, uh, it's, a, it's a business model. Yeah, it's hard because particularly like what I've seen is that like the earlier funds that haven't raised fund two or fund three yet, they're so worried about continuing to, because you kind of have that valley of death that, you know, startups have in the early days to make it to, you know, seed or series A, it's similar to that with like fund two and three, right? Because usually you raise on the back of your performance of the, of the first fund. And if you don't have any exits yet, it's the hopes of the an exit and fund three. By the time you get to fund three, you better have like some real serious traction. And so there's a lot of pressure on these fund managers to make mm -hmm. it happen. I think that the best investors, you know, there's like I had Kevin Efrazi on here, who was uh, you know from Excel, and I mean he had early hits like Facebook and Groupon and, and a bunch of other companies. 
and he was just wildly successful. And so the pressure for him like is completely lifted off his shoulders because the guy is uber successful and it's not like he's dependent on one company to, to make it big. And which I've heard that in companies that have blown up that he's been a part of, he's like cool as a cucumber because, you know, I mean, like, obviously he's disappointed, but he, he doesn't, you know, treat it like the end of the world because he understands it happens and it, his reputation isn't dependent on it. So I think that comes with experience, would you say? It comes with, with experience, but it's also something that, you know, you have different type of investors and you have invested that and everybody knows, for instance, what's the reputation of Sequoia? Everybody knows that when they back you, they back you till the end. And when you look at DoorDash, for instance, and all the awful moment they went through and, and the success they, they had at the end, uh, it's a big question mark, but would have been we've, would have they have been able to do that without Sequoia? You no, know? believing in them and 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 not only the money, the fact that they are behind them, you know. Um, and and I found that I, I, I when I think about investing, I, I'm thinking about that. You know, I'm thinking about how can I, you know, show the founder um, that I would back him and what whatever happens, you know, and um, and and for me that's important. It's creating that kind of relationship that in the good time and bad time, I'm the same person, you know, and I'm still there. Usually when a company is doing great, you know, obviously a lot of people wants to be there, you know, and when things are getting harder, it's hard to find someone actually to actually answer the phone. And that's, that's the hard truth about being an, uh, a founder and um, being on both sides. I know how important it is to have people you can call and you can trust. And you can actually tell them, you know, how you feel and, and share that with them. Yeah, that's an interesting topic that I've often explored here is like the topic of how vulnerable you can you be with your investors. You know, I feel like having been in, now doing some investing and built a business as an angel investor, like your angels are usually your go-to like on these situations. But I feel like those entrepreneurs that have become investors they're usually a great kind of resource for these types of situations because inevitably they've had a moment of difficulty during their journey. 100%. And I think it's usually, it doesn't matter if it's an angel or a seed fund or already seed fund. Uh, usually the difference is between, for those kind of moments, uh, between like when you are a small investor, you are, sh you are closer to the same kind of treat treatment that will have a founder, you know, you have a, usually you, you will have like the, the shittiest, you know, shares of the company, the one that will be paid at the end compared to a later stage fund that will end, enter, you know, in the series B and that will have liquidation preference that will have, uh, um, will be paid first. So inevitably there will be moments where you are not on the same side than your investor. No. And the earlier investor, the angel, the early seed, the people that actually took the biggest risk by investing in you are in the same boat as you. And that's usually the reason why um, you can be more open to them. You know, it's not going to change, you know, like if Brian invested 10K in your company, you can be open. Like those 10K will not change Brian's life. And um, he knows because he was a founder and he's on the, like he shares probably value. Like he's also at the end of the, the full, uh, you said full, full, um, the liquid, the, 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 the yeah, yeah, the end of the stack that you, he's yeah. going to be so so you are the same, and that's what makes a little bit those conflict of interest that you will have with later stage funds 
and this is hard to understand when you, you haven't read like bigger rounds and talk to those guys. It's simply people are looking for different interests, you know, and uh, and they are, they are taking care of their LP. And it's not because they're bad people, because that's their job. They're paid to do that. Yeah, let's talk about that conflicting interest, because, I mean, that's something that I saw a little bit in my company. We raised the very, at the time, a large Series C and there's a different kind of expectation, right, of a growth investor versus an early stage investor. And then also at the same to the same token, like earlier investors, you know, most of them that are really experienced, you know, they're they're just there to back you. But at the end of the day, like also, you know, they're also eager to kind of get a return. And at some point, you know, after seven years, eight years of waiting, and so the time horizon is also changed. So how do you navigate the different share classes and different expectations of, of investors. What's your advice to try to optimize that the best you can as a founder? It's really hard because it's a case by case, you know? And until usually when things are going well, like everybody's on the same page, you know? Everybody's happy, you know? Your shares is worth more, his shares is worth more, and everybody's happy. Usually it's it's when 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 you start, when the market are shifting or when the company is, is going through a tough moment where... Um, basically if the fund that invested hundred million at a 1 million valuation, he knows that if the company is sold for 200 million, he will get his hundred million back, you know, and yeah. probably the, the other hundred million will not go back. Like all the rest will not get their money back. And that's, that's the harsh truth. So the difference is that that fund can, can be in, is in a, is in a better position than the others. And that's where, you know, conflict of interest start because they don't, Sometimes they would say, okay, you know what? We stop here, I get my money back, and that's it, you know, uh, compared to, to others. And, 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 and because they have more seat on the, on, on the board, and et cetera, and they, have, uh, 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 they are sitting on the money, and, and they, they, they have um, a better say uh, than most of other investors. Yeah. And this isn't to like intimidate founders that are listening and you know, not wanting to go big, but these are some of the realities that you contend with. And Liquidation preference is like a real thing. You have to kind of evaluate like what is this, what's the outcome that you want? And uh, let, let's talk a little bit more, moving on to Grin a little bit. Let's, Green, sorry. Uh, uh, Grin, that's very gringo of me to say Grin. What are the challenges of building a company that depends on you know hardware, physical assets, especially related to costs and risk? And maybe take us through a little bit on your journey. Because I mean, I know that was filled with ups and downs and meteoric rise. And talk us through that a little bit and then uh, talk about some of the challenges. The reality is that when you build a company like that, that depends on VC, you know that it's um, it's it's completely different. I mean, in the best scenario, you, you use VC money to grow and not depending on it is, is the best position you can be, you know, when you don't need the money. The problem when you build a company like us, where you need to buy the hardware to build a team and, and to grow physically, you know, with operation, obviously it's the kind of business that really need, depends on VC money to do that. And that kind of changes also the, the, the situation and, and, and even the goals of the company, because once you, you let the wolf get into the company, obviously it, it influences. And, the reality is that for you, a company is always 100% like it's your life. It's your baby. It's everything you do. Uh, for investors, don't forget, they will invest in another 100 companies and they only need one success, you know, to make the economics work. So you are not 100% aligned. Uh, now, I, I'm, a, I'm a big boy and I know what, what I was doing. And we knew that 
and it, we actually wanted to do something like that, and we knew that the risk it took to do it. But the reality is that that basically the market dictates a little bit what they expect, you know, and the markets were okay, but like what's the reason to exist of green, you know? And green obviously um, was to become the leader in the region. So you need to be the leader in the region. Like you cannot be uh, the scooter business in the region and then have Lime or Bird, you know, uh, being bigger than you in your own garden, you know? So obviously it was like a, 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 a huge race. And, um, and, and the fun fact is that, you, you know, you, you're building, you're growing, you're hiring. And we grew in 25 cities, seven countries, over 2,500 employees in less than 18 months, you know? So it's, it's, it's really building a huge machine. And then when suddenly you're actually winning and you're actually realizing that, uh, okay, they are, they are leaving your, you know, we had 87% of the market share, like something crazy. Um, but then the market suddenly shifts, you know, post we work and people are like, you know, winning the region is not, not actually what we, we expected. You know, we want to work on the unit economics. And so you're kind of, you need to, to shift and, you know, from the outside, it looks okay. That doesn't look too difficult, you know, but from the inside, it's imagine like a huge cruise ship and suddenly you, you need to do a U-turn from the outside. It looks like, oh, it's going to turn from the inside everybody like that. And that's, you know, it's part of, 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 of what you need to do as a founder. And, um, and it's the reality of the market. And if you don't depend on VC, you can say, fuck it, I'm going to continue my way or I'm going to do this, this and that. When you depend on VC, you have no other choice than to obey to the market because if you don't continue, then you will not be able to continue raising. And that's, that's a little bit the two different things. So yes, if you're listening and you're building, if you can build something and not depend on VC money, do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not for everybody. And particularly in certain markets, the size of the opportunity, et cetera, don't really justify or warrant the the large fundraisings but obviously in your case you know this is a highly competitive space it's a huge sector of opportunity uh, and you had competitors too i mean you had the competitors in the us you had some brazil competitors talk about a little bit about the merger i went through a merger with my biggest competitor so like you know i can record an episode on all of the mistakes that we made there uh, which were you know numerous and uh, you know i think we got some things right and made some mistakes as as always happens but First of all, what motivated the merger, and then talk about some of the challenges and things that you learned in that process. I think I think we we, we can do an episode or ten episodes about that because we did we did many mergers actually. Very early on in the company, when we started, we realized that the benefit of of being able to uh, to attract talent, you know, and being able to to bring people that were motivated. So um, and and wanted to build something similar or or a complementary to what we were building. So we did many mergers and I was, I almost thought my job in the company was, you know, a banker doing M&As. We somewhere closer to an acquihire, you know, just, you know, trying to bring people on board, you know, a company doing the same in a way. Don't raise money, just join the team and stuff like that. Um, others were like complementary businesses, you know, you're doing electric uh, uh, motorcycles, we are doing scooters, you know, at the end, what we want to build is one app where you can have all the vehicles, bicycles, scooters, motorcycle, but they have expertise in certain things. So, you know, we tried kind of uh, bring that. And I would say most of the merger went well because it was a clear, I would say, like green was acquiring and, and they were joining and, and fitting into the green culture. In the case of yellow, which was 
obviously a different beast. A, a few things were difficult. First of all, there was a lot of pressure from our investors. Some of our investors were investing in both, bringing the clear winner in the Latin America. Honestly, we were clearly winning. You know, we launched in Brazil before them. You know, and clearly we had a huge market share. Uh, they, obviously, they, they were doing bicycles. That it's true, but in in scooters, we were we were growing way faster than them. Um, and but what they were telling us, yeah, on the outside, people will still believe there are two companies, so there is a benefits to it. Um, they went through some difficult moments internally, so there was a good opportunity to do something. Um, so we decided to to, to explore that. Um, I think that compared to other merger we did. In this case, the fact, first of all, that you know it's Spanish and and Portuguese makes it a little bit difficult, you know, more difficult because you have to join also different culture. Um, but also the fact that uh, actually there were more employees from yellow than green, you know, and it's things that you don't really realize, but you are actually absorbing something that's bigger than you, and 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 the culture that you are trying to build. Um, also change because of that, because just think about a glass of wine and you put a lot of water into it, it's not going to be the same. You know? if, it's a, if it's only a drop, it's not going to change the taste. If it's a lot of water, it's going to start you know, changing the, the texture, the color, and the taste. The second thing is that the culture in, in yellow was very strong because it was the, it's, it's the founder of, of 99 Taxi, you know, starting that, and a lot of core were already coming from that. So it's really hard to to try to push one culture when you have different, when it comes from different parts. So we, we went through a lot of challenges. Um, and, uh, but you, as you mentioned earlier, I mean, this is part of, of when you build something and you try to do things, uh, you learn from it. And I've been like, we, we took a master there. Uh, it's more Sergio that was in, in, like really busy with, with trying to make it, you know, to build it together. And it was, it's something difficult. I think this is something that people, so many people warned me about, you know, the merger and, and all the difficulties. Um, I wish I would have listened more, you know, um, before actually doing it. We, me and you both have been through that process and know how, how challenging it is. And one other thing that I want to just kind of ask about, we're, we're kind of coming to the end here, but things get complicated when you become a bigger company and you've got a board to contend with. What is the craziest thing that you've ever seen at a board meeting? I wish I could say it on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so it's so it's not it's not fit for uh, for our audience apparently. The, the reason I mean, I mean, like, the reason why I, mean, I asked that, that I, I, I have an investigative investigative uh, Howard Stern like journalistic team here, so I queued that question up because I don't know the answer, but I know that it's a bit of a crazy story. Yeah, obviously, I want to continue working in in this industry for for a while, so I, I'm better I'm better not say anything. Not without my lawyer. No, I mean, like what I would say, like that. At a certain point, when the, you, you grow and, and and the company becomes big, managing a board becomes like almost a full time job. And I, I'm sure that you relate to that. It's like really, really like it takes a, a big part of your of your time. And uh, and of course, a lot of things happening in, in in board. But I think it's important to understand that a board at the end is also something um, sacred, you know, it's like a temple. And, and, and I think this is very important and for every founder to understand that it's important to respect that, you know, because you have fiduciary duties and it's okay. Not, I mean, I think it's good that not everyone agrees and, and that you have those discussions because that's the reason of a board to exist, you know, 
but yeah, we went through some <laughs> some <laughs> some interesting All right, moments. Well, when, when you're when you're at liberty to speak about it, hopefully you'll at least break the break the news on our podcast here. But I won't. I'll come I'll, back I'll, the day I retire. I'll come back. <laughs> yeah, when there's no, nothing at stake anymore. You do have a really good reputation as a, an investor and somebody that understands kind of the entrepreneurial journey deeply, and so. I would understand why you would want to keep your reputation intact. So you're off the hook this time. But listen, thank you for coming on the podcast. Really enjoyed the chat and excited to have you as you know an engaged person in our community. And think that you know we like to be your number one uh, deal flow source at Latitude. So we've got incredible founders in the community, and you're going to meet some of them, you know, in the coming days. And so I think you'll be quite impressed with the caliber and you know the handful of opportunities that are there. Awesome. Looking forward to it. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to the Latitude Podcast with Jonathan Louis, co-founder of Investo in Green. Be sure to check out latitude.com to find out how to apply to our fellowship program and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts for more talks with great founders and investors like him. I'm your host, Brian Reckworth. Vamos Latam. See you next week.